0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Overlap. We are not in person, not recording via video this time around, but I promise we will come back soon. We are recording on Labor Day. Happy Labor Day to all those that are listening, of course, after Labor Day when this gets published, but we are very much uh, tired and exhausted from our long weeks and weekends. So here we are um, in our respective apartments, just talking and chatting and, you know, the likes. Hi, Ria. What's up? <laughs> What's up,
1: Elias? Uh, I'm doing good. Yeah, I got a, I got a pretty good like eight hours of sleep last night. I didn't, Healthy. didn't really do much um, yesterday uh, outside of like watching the games and, and watching a movie. And then I just stayed in and, and got like eight hours at least. And it was the first time I got eight hours of sleep probably in <laughs> like in, probably like a week or so nice (laughs) nice. but but part of that because I was on like vacation for a week
0: so that's the weird part about vacation is like you go and the whole purpose of it is to like relax and step away from work and chill but then you end up like trying to cram in a bunch of things so you don't actually always chill which like all the time it happens all the time for me
1: yeah yeah I I think it's just because we're at our age where the vacations aren't necessarily like like laying on a i mean it could be laying on a beach but you wouldn't be you wouldn't be laying on the beach the entire time if you're if we're going with our friends or something like that like it's 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 very different it's very different from like the vacations that my parents go on together
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah honestly at some point in the next 10 years i think i'm going to get to that that point and just say yeah when i go on vacation i i don't want to do shit for (laughs) like a very long time (laughs) but then again hopefully we'll have like more vacation days as we get older but uh neither here nor there so anyway (laughs) but i'm glad i'm glad the VK was good um i i didn't get to watch as many games as you did yesterday that was my one bummer i mean granted I, i i mentioned this to you but i was at the u.s open yesterday which was fantastic like all around got to see some pretty big names saw Coco Golf win, um, which was just a really, really solid matchup. Um, saw Rafa Nadal warm up. That was honestly probably the highlight from the weekend for me. Um, this this has just turned into humble bragging at this point, but it was it was just that good.
1: <laughs> yeah, I still have yet to go. I uh, get to make it to the U.S. Open um, or any of the U.S. Open stuff, but yeah, I was I was. Obviously, watched the last Serena match, and that, that was Friday yeah. night, right? Yep, yeah, that, that was like damn, that was really emotional at the end. I mean, obviously, yeah. she was emotional at the end, but that was like I, I was, um, it was like pregaming for, for something that night, and, and so we had the match on, and then after it ended, we still had it on, but we had we didn't have the sound on, and we just had the, the closed captions or whatever on. Um, and even from just that, it's yeah. it was like it was pretty heart-wrenching it was just maybe that made it honestly more emotions just seeing her like raw emotions and not <laughs> and not hearing her say them specifically although like hearing her speak while crying too probably would have also killed me but <laughs> uh but no it was it was beautiful and and i mean i don't know there's, there's really not much you can say about about serena williams at this point now that 100%. most people don't already know it was like even in that even in that last game like the way the crowd just uh, it if the us open usually is home field advantage for anyone who's american anyway but like every one of those matches where (laughs) i can't remember the name of of the uh of the player that ended up beating her in that match but like no crowd reactions whenever she was winning a point and then the contrast to anytime serena wins the point it was like bedlam <laughs> yeah like every single point uh man yeah it, it's, a, it's a spectacle i really want to try to make it out there hopefully in the next yeah. couple years
0: well first off highly recommend it it's it's like they set up a mini olympic village that's how i put it like in the middle of queens in flushing it's really really cool it's a whole experience and it's like a little carnival. Honestly um but yeah in serena's like post message like uh, she she was beaten by ala ayla uh some, she's from australia um and like they interviewed her after serena and she just talked about how inspiring serena was like for her, her her own career and like she she's the goat like she really is the goat um and i i don't i don't use that very lightly so yeah, it's it's honestly like it was it was been really refreshing and really just really, really honorable, I guess. I don't know what the right mm. word is Um, watching like just so, some incredible athletes in our lifetime, like Serena yeah. plus, honestly. So, yeah, uh, I say that while like Rafa Nadal is playing right now. Yeah, I was going to say, we <laughs> still have the three,
1: the three, the three on the guy side who just refuse to die.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> literally. Well, one couldn't play for certain medical reasons, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> and, wow. yes. yes, in the U.S., but uh, <laughs> we won't we won't step into that territory. Um, instead, we're going to spend the rest of the podcast talking about some very very fun games that happened this weekend, both in England and in Spain. Um, there's there were like one or two across Germany and uh, Italy as well. Yeah, the, the Milan, Milan Derby. derby. Uh, of course, being a big one, Milan pulling out a 3-2 win uh, over Inter. Very, very, I mean, I think you talk about it more than I do, um, but there's a, a certain Rafael Liao who is uh, just proving his his current release clause <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, but before we even touch on that, even if we do, we probably won't. We want to start in England, Rian. We're going to start with the Premier League. We're going to start with our game of the week. Arsenal against United. Now, full disclosure, I did not get a chance to watch the game in full. Obviously, watched the extended highlights, you know, broke down some of how each of these teams set up. But I feel like from what I saw, this was one of the best games in recent memory between these two sides, um, just in terms of competitiveness, in terms of edge, and really just how close this game was, especially in the first half. Um, What were your thoughts, kind of heading into the game, and then as the game kicked off?
1: Yeah, I I thought yeah Arsenal went into that game as I think heavy favorites. I wish that I took a look at the odds before the match, but I'm sure they went into that pretty heavy favorites. Not not only in like betting markets, but like the public eye too, because of the way that Arsenal started the season. Everything looking very every the consistency through their first five games was what was most impressive um not just getting the wins but the way that they played in each game and and carrying that over against each opponent who offered like different um different challenges on the united side i know they came into that game with three straight wins but we had also talked about how they changed their style of play pretty drastically from the first two games of the of the season and Um, We know that's not exactly how Eric Ten Hag wants him to play like a year from now, but he's doing what he has to do right now to try to disguise as many weaknesses as possible for United. And so coming into the game, you you kind of expected that it would be pretty one-way traffic and uh, for the like the entire game. And we it really wasn't that like basically up until Anthony's goal. Like it really wasn't that Um, the possession between the two overall, like by the end of the game was about 60, 40 in Arsenal's favor, but you saw really, really good football on both sides. Like each team I thought executed what they wanted to do pretty well. Arsenal lacked the execution in the box it like lacked the the same execution that United had in the in the penalty box, and it, you know it really reminded me of that one one of the clips from uh, one of the episodes of All or Nothing, with the Arsenal one this year, where I think it was after they played, I want to say either Man City or Liverpool, like in one of their final games of the season, or second half of the season, where Arteta basically said to the team. He, he set up on the board, you know, between the two boxes. He said, we were great here between these two boxes. So and then he said, like, to the, get to the next level, we have to also be great in the penalty boxes. And that's where, where they lost the um, games against City and Liverpool last season. And that was kind of where the, uh, I think for me, that I feel like that's where the game was mostly lost for them today too, or uh, yesterday too. But yeah, like, like I said, overall, it was really evenly matched game. Um and Arsenal's gonna rue ruse lacking the execution in the in the penalty box. Um because them and Man United had United had seven shots in the penalty box and so did Arsenal and Arsenal had eight. So that even with the possession, it was a very, very even game, I thought
0: like in the attacking thirds. I think so there are two things that came to mind um especially in that first half for me. Everything you said about being clinical. As relates to Arsenal, one thousand percent. But I think there are two things on the United side that also stood out to me. One was just Ten Hag's overall ability to shift this team's style of play in the matter of about two weeks has been nothing short of absolutely miraculous. Because I think he started this season, especially the first two games of the season, when they got slapped, Mm -hmm. thinking, "Oh, I'm you know probably going to." come from Ajax play a similar style maybe not the exact profiles that I want in the exact positions but stylistically it's going to be pretty similar to you know the ideas that I want to implement very rude awakening very quick wake-up call and they're now on a four-game winning streak but that ability to just turn and face is not something that happens easily within a squad so I think he deserves a lot of credits I think the players also deserve a lot of credit for being able to 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 basically take a stylistic approach that involves quite honestly, not to make it about us here, but like a lot of what we were talking about after those two games, like I think back to United's third goal. And I think about how much freedom Bruno had, right. To play in the ball behind Marcus Rashford, like runners in behind, right. We talked about runners in behind a lot, especially in wide areas. Now this was through the middle, but Arsenal were pressing like crazy because they needed a goal. So yeah, there were little things like that that we even talked about that I felt like, oh, okay, United have kind of realized where those, those gaps and those weaknesses are, mm-hmm. and having Antony does not hurt, right, in this case, because they did need a true right winger um, that was not makeshift Jadon Sancho, right, out of position. Yeah. So there were a lot of things about United specifically that stood out to me. As it relates to Arsenal and, and kind of the lack of finishing – one of those shots goes in, we're having a completely different conversation. I think that's, that. it's just one of those games. And I think this could have happened in a game against City. It could have happened in a game against Brighton. I, 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 think, I, I think this is okay, right? This is part of growth for Arsenal. Um, there, there were four games unbeaten before this. They're not going to have an invincible season to, <laughs> unlike what some Arsenal fans might lead you to believe. So I, I like if I'm an Arsenal fan, I'm not worried at all i'm i'm not happy but i'm not worried
1: yeah yeah you hit the nail on the head there like you look at the xg and his Opta's stats it was in united's favor like one and a half to about 1.3 um it it was really that came down to like it, when when it is that close especially like the when you talk about the quality of chances that each team ended up creating yeah, sometimes it's just you got to be able to finish, and, and like, and and you'll be on, as you said, you you can be on the end of like a three-one. It doesn't, I don't think either of us think that Arsenal were two goals worse than United during this game. But simple fact of the matter is that United was able to find space and put their put um their good finishers into positions where they were they had one-on-ones. It was basically three one-on-ones um that they end up scoring from, but. I thought it was like really, really impressive from, like you said, from Ten Hag and United to realize that they needed to work with as much space as they can. Like, like, and you kind of saw it in that first, in the first goal, in Anthony's goal. There's a good, like, a minute or so clip if you get a chance to watch a, the whole sequence of that goal. You know, they end up passing it like three or four passes backwards. They go all the way back pretty much to the goalkeeper. Um, and erickson just drops way deep to get some space and then he plays that line like on on both of the first two goals for united he plays these types of passes but for that first goal specifically he plays this line breaking pass from deep from basically right next to the center backs um into bruno who's then allowed to run at arsenal's defense and um a couple nice passes later and you know, I, I think some people were kind of getting on Zinchenko about about his positioning on that first goal. But, I mean, simple matter is that he was put in a position where, and this is because of how well United moved the ball, right? He was put in a position where he had to make a really tough decision. Do I, do I tuck in and try to stop and try to help stop Rashford's shot because Rashford's in a pretty good position to get a shot off? Or do I sit out... Um, Sit out on the on the the wing and and just sit with Anthony and and just hope that that Rashford doesn't get the shot off. <laughs> like uh, it's it's he was put in a really tough position and Rashford made that's two weeks in a row. Um, if I'm thinking of I mean either thinking of that game or the or the Liverpool game, but where Rashford he only has like a, a second to make the decision and makes a quick decision and gets it out to the winger. Um, last time it was Sancho I think for against Liverpool and then this time or um these games are conflating together it wasn't whoever they (laughs) played last week but uh this time it was to Anthony who finished it beautifully like and and that was kind of the the difference in the end like like I said the finishing of, of both teams um but that being said you know after that goal United dropped even deep like dropped pretty deep like the the game was pretty even leading up to that antony goal the possession was actually 53 to 47 in favor, favor of Manchester United but after that goal i also really enjoyed the response from, from arsenal like, like united did sit deeper and go even more counter attacking and really relied on on the counter attack and they wanted they wanted the space to be able to play the passes that they did for the second and third goals but arsenal also did really really well in terms of like keeping the ball being patient i thought um in the final third against united and and they just couldn't quite get the last ball um or in or create that little bit of space to get a shot off uh and that was kind of where their attack just faltered a little bit once they got to the box but again credit to united because now they're much better at defending their own box and part of that has to do with (laughs) No Harry Maguire, but also part of that has to do with Lissandra Martinez, who's a freaking terrier dog like out there.
0: (laughs) He got torn apart in the first two games of the season for aspects of his body dynamics that he just (laughs) simply cannot control, and it was it was a reminder to me that people in this sport have such short term thinking, like really short term thinking, and someone that performed so well for you scored. 20 goals last season, right, in a league campaign that has maybe scored one goal so far this season over four or five games can just be vilified. Or in this case, like in the case of Lysandre Martinez, probably Ajax's best defender and Argentina's one of uh, two starting center backs. Like, that, there's a reason why he is there. (laughs) He truly is. He is incredible at closing down space. He's incredible at being aggressive. Um, there are aspects of Harry Maguire that cannot do that, and he's what six two, six three, maybe. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's even Varane.
1: Good... Even Varane, you have to throw in like, like well, the, I think the rate at defending his Buran... box,
0: at defending the box, as well. He is his life, I think, has been made easier by having Lissandro Martinez in the same way that he had Sergio Ramos at Real Madrid, right? We talked about how he kind of needs that partnership. And I think he found he's found something, right? Of the early course of the season so far. I do I do before we move on to the next kind of point about the most surprising pieces in the prem, I do want to just ask you who you thought your biggest standout player was in this in this side slash in this game, because Rashford obviously scored a brace, and it was his first brace in what, over a year, something like that?
1: Definitely over a year, yeah. yeah,
0: if I had to guess. So for that alone, you could say job well done. But I feel like you've talked a lot about Christian Eriksen and Bruno Fernandez a little bit as well. Who do you think had a better game, or who, who was your maybe your standout player?
1: Yeah, I, I think, like like you said, like Rashford – getting that brace and getting an assist in that game. Like he's, he deserves all the plaudits, Especially for thinking about how tough the last 12 months have been for him, you know, physically and mentally. But I said earlier, it's, it's Erickson for me. It's playing in a position that is still, I'm not sure like the long-term viability of it, like playing this deep and, and maybe that slightly changes when, uh, Casemiro is more fully integrated into the team and that's someone to also do like in the in a way that McTominay has someone like to do the running around and and, and um helping the defending yeah so, so he can
0: do the tackling right yeah yeah
1: yeah literally so Casemiro and or McTominay or Fred to do the actual tackling and, and allow Erickson the freedom to do what he did this past weekend uh it, it was not surprising because we know the talent that he has, but it was um it was really nice to see that that you know that player is still there. You know, I, I talked about it a bit before the season when um I think when we spoke about just being excited to see Ten Hag come into the league in general, but you know, Erickson, even those six months for Brentford last season, the elite chance creator, the elite passer, elite playmaker, that guy was still there and we saw it a lot and the stats backed it up and in this game itself you saw it on those first first two goals first two united goals i I talked about the first one um the second goal not not the rashford goal the uh, or actually the first rashford goal where it it comes starting off from a a giveaway from from lakanga who just he gives the ball away and then is just not quite in position to be able to help stop the counter. So he gives it away. And then he gets to Erickson Erickson first time plays great ball around the corner just to get it to Bruno Fernandes, who then plays obviously a disgusting pass <laughs> outside of, outside of his foot. Um, but it's that first pass, that first pass that, that progresses the ball forward. It's like that thing, literally that thing we talk about where it's great to have the, The guys who can do damage in the defensive box and your attacking box but you still need someone to actually get the ball forward into those areas and uh and erickson the pass that he plays to bruno is so so important because it opened up the entire pitch for bruno and had him immediately looking directly at um arsenal's line and rashford's running him behind and that's that's like a really really impressive way to just create an easy chance for the entire team it took two passes pretty much and they, and he was one on one with um with Ramsdale and then you look at even the third goal it, it's just an intelligent run through the middle from from Erickson. another great pass made by by Bruno um but intelligent runs straight through the middle of the pitch from Erickson. showing that he still has that part to his game still the running forward and getting involved in in the in the attacking box and it's a simple layoff to um to rapture for a second goal but yeah he, he and bruno retired for the team high uh six passes into the final third for united in that game and yeah it, it, those two i mean bruno especially is great when he when it's a kind of like a counter and he can play into space um Ericsson we know can kind of be good in almost any circumstance and and um he's probably the most important or this may be arguably the most important player for for United I think right now
0: the one interesting thing that you said and then we can move on I guess is like maybe Erickson's role changes with the introduction and the inclusion of Casemiro I would argue maybe not because I don't think there's another player in the squad that can do what Erickson does with both his vision and with point. his ability to find, find space on the pitch. So honestly don't know if it changes. And if it maybe does it's a double pivot, it, maybe, maybe that's exactly yeah. what I was going to say. If it does change, it would have to be a double pivot of some sort. Um, and hopefully it's not McTominay. <laughs> that's all <laughs> I have to say. So anyway, with, with the game of the week out of the way in the prem, Want to talk about what kind of surprised you the most? Um, I have a feeling I know. I know if, if it's going to be a team, I have a feeling I know what team it's going to be. If it's a player, I don't know. But what at least surprised you the most this past weekend um, from the Premier League?
1: Yeah, I, I think only surprising. This team's only surprising in the sense of. Hmm. In the sense of no one else right now is playing or not no one else. Very few teams are playing as well as, as they are right now, but you're not impressed that this team is playing that well. And that team is Brighton um, really, really impressive start to this season. They're in fourth. Um, uh, They've got four wins, a draw and a loss. And they have looked really, really impressive in basically every game um i know they lost to fulham last week but we're seeing that fulham is not a, an easy win for, for almost anyone right now but um for brighton you know only 6 games in you know, they've got the fifth best goal difference and they've got the fifth best expected goal difference per 90 um potter has been so good at like every game is a slight tweak very slight tweak in terms of how they play depending on who the opponent is and what's been most impressive to me is how he's totally repurposed uh Alex McAllister who last season and i think even in the in every season that he's been at brighton so far and probably even when he was in argentina um he was like an attacking midfielder pretty much and and a number 10 like mean, he literally wears a number 10 for them but he's turned into this season he's like the deepest lying midfielder on their team and you'd be you would Think that why of all players um is the like little former attacking midfielder playing um uh, a defensive mid, but he's been really, really impressive there and it just kind of a microcosm of of Potter's like versatility and and how well he's at adapting to who he's playing, um and just kind of his total acumen as a coach. Just to keep it on McAllister like last season he averaged about passes into the penalty area and a little less than one interceptions per game this season 0.2 passes into the penalty area and two interceptions per game so his role is completely changing the team and they have not been any worse for it now it helps that he has like Mwepu and Kaisero also playing next to him and those guys are are helping a lot in that, in the defensive side, especially.
0: They're, they're basically doing in some ways, like splitting the role that he had last Mm -hmm. season, right? Like across two players. That's kind of how I view right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, And those who are, are pressing monsters as well in their own sense where they, they're very good at snuffing out a lot of dangers before it even gets to Brighton's back line or to McAllister but just overall like Brighton specifically extremely impressive not surprised not not uh totally surprised that they're playing this well but it's, it's just again more and more plaudits more deserved plaudits I think for Graham Potter and Brighton and Brighton as a whole too like you know to bring in these players consistently consistently bring in players that that work for exactly what they're trying to do, um, that can thrive within the system, whatever that system might be that they're playing, uh, it's as a whole Brighton extremely impressive so far.
0: I think the the one other thing I'll say just about Graham Potter is as a as a manager last season as well, a lot of what Brighton did this season at least in terms of just pure output is very much the same just taking a step away from McAllister on I'm not sure what there actually was over the course of last season but we all know the memes right we all know exactly like what Brighton became infamous for was basically chance creation like galore and what I think is really refreshing is Brighton have found a new way of doing or having the same output, essentially. But what I love about this shift tactically is the players that they've brought in are almost to, like, best support McAllister, right? It's not, like, you kind of said it that they've brought in great players, but, like, for what purpose? Like, they, they've they basically created a system where McAllister's, McAllister's protected, right, from having to do the totally uh, all all the creative passing and all of the you know what i mean all of those mm-hmm. things that were on his shoulders last season i mean he was i think looked at at some point by um, by Scaloni for a call up to argentina as well and i think he i think he did get called up or he was in contention something like that um and i hope to see that continue honestly cuz even now he's thriving, but th- th- that's just a credit to Brighton and to Graham Potter specifically, like for their management of their squad.
1: Yeah, and you know we didn't, we didn't say at the beginning, but they won this past weekend with a five-two win against <laughs> yeah, against yeah. Leicester. Well, we'll get on to um, actually that comes into like the most disappointing the the, <laughs> the disappointing thing from that game, and then disappointing thing overall from the weekend was one of these very very suspicious var calls
0: what one of how many
1: (laughs) um i i counted it i counted four at least in our in our notes (laughs) here like just i counted just four there might have been others um we should also preface that we did not speak about the the foul the var call in the united arsenal game i think ellis and i are both pretty yeah. Much in agreement that that's an obvious that was an obvious foul Odegaard on on Erickson. and there there's we've got more than enough room to talk about VAR controversy and and bad calls and that one doesn't even remotely <laughs> touch in, the, in the whole weekend that is like the bedrock literally like that is not even close but um yeah it was it was quite disappointing this theme of um. Very, very weird inconsistencies and what feels like an over-involvement at times um, of the VAR in making what is already the hardest thing to do in this sport, which is scoring a goal and making it even harder to do. Uh, that is by far the most disappointing thing for me this past weekend.
0: Yeah, I, I will say... The combination of the number of inconsistent calls this weekend, I think, is just a microcosm of what's been going on for the last two years in the Premier League. And maybe that maybe the Premier League isn't the only culprit here, right? In fact, I'd argue they probably yeah. are not. But I think there is a sense that VAR in the Premier League is handled very differently from VAR in the other top five leagues in the sense that. There isn't really a clear definition of what certain, I guess, illegal actions are. Handballs being a really good example of how those have, the definition of a handball has shifted over the last three years. I think offsides has just been a thorn in everyone's side. No, and let me be clear. I don't think there's a definition of any of these incidents that's going to make everybody happy. It's like impossible. Yeah. There's yeah. like, if you accept that off the bat, life becomes a lot better because you're not <laughs> going to ever make everybody happy. But I think what the, like the crucial part of what was most disappointing for me across the this weekend was between, and I'm looking at my notes now or Rion's notes, but the foul quote unquote on Mendy. And I think there was also a foul that Ramsdale committed last weekend uh, or the last
1: yeah yeah last weekend it was um I believe they're playing Villa Arsenal was uh and (laughs) and I can't remember who maybe it was Douglas or someone someone scored basically an Olympico yeah but but one of the Villa players was like literally like not allowing Ramsell to move back to be able to actually parry the ball away. And I was watching that live and remember seeing, it, I was like, Oh, this is definitely got to be called back. Right. <laughs> like, and then right. it didn't. And then you see this past weekend um, where, you know, the, the really weird foul call in the Chelsea West Ham game that basically denies West Ham a, a last minute draw on Mendy. It was just kind of like between that and the Ramsdale thing, I was like, oh. the reason I thought the Ramsdale thing was going to get called because I was like, oh, well, I mean, we always overprotect the goalkeepers and we call every little tap on them a foul pretty much. Didn't call it there, did call it here. And then, you know, um, we had the offside call in, in the Brighton-Lester game that denied us a Galazzo from, <laughs> from McAllister. Thankfully, he still ended up getting his hat trick um, with a great free kick at the end of the game uh it's just I hate talking about refereeing decisions like anyone who listens to this knows that like we very rarely talk about refereeing decisions in any particular game like very very rarely
0: yeah
1: and like mostly because my thought is that it just kind of all evens itself out over over a season that does not mean that these fouls these like calls should still be this wrong or like this this cons- inconsistent, I'm not condoning any of that, but that's, it pains me to talk about refereeing decisions, but it's, it's just at a point right now where it's just like, if you want to call a goal off, we can find something. We can find a reason. This is yeah. a very subjective sport. <laughs> like <laughs> we can find a reason to call any goal off. Um, but just the principle of, like I said at the top, like making, scoring a goal which is so fucking difficult as is you, so you needed so many things to go right for that for that to happen in the first place um making that so much more difficult
0: i I'll, i want to wrap up the most disappointing section just around var with a thought and i think it's a thought that many people have forgotten about var as a platform is only as good as the people behind the screens and yeah. what I think is really really sad is just seemingly how at least it feels like all of these referees in the prem have gone through different training courses on VAR and what a definition of an offside is a la Villa City or what the definition of a, a foul is that like all of these things yes are very subjective to your point but it seems like there's no nuance between any of these potential decisions like there isn't a clear set of you know historical precedent to say oh okay well yeah if you block a goalkeeper like that and prevent him from running out of his you know one yard area yeah that's pretty clearly like obstruction but it's purely just seemingly down to what the referees think and what they see with their own eyes, which is not always accurate. And that's extremely frustrating. And when you use VAR, you know, basically to look at everything in slow motion, you can kind of distort it to the way that you would like as well. Um, so it's, it's frustrating, but anyway, I'm, I'm done yeah. with with VR yeah, green decisions. Are, I don't yeah, I don't think I've talked other, about it in La Liga even for like a year. So yeah. Like, and
1: and like the, the last thing I'll say too is like a lot of sympathy for these referees because when you do get it wrong, it it is like hell. Like I, yeah. I, I like the fans come after you everything and um I think it is an issue in England at least that a lot of people don't want to become referees for this exact reason. Um so it's kind of like a it's like a catch 22 Like you need better refs for this stuff to make sense but you also need the refs to make the right decisions or make decisions that make sense for for enough people um to not get the abuse that then stops other people from becoming referees it's like a pretty terrible cycle but um yeah, yeah. I, look if if either of us knew how to fix this we would not be sitting here doing this so
0: that's that's pretty damn accurate well last thing on the prem what are you kind of looking forward to most uh next weekend I think the two big games are Arsenal Everton and City Spurs I believe Mm. um I feel like there's a ticking time bomb on Brendan Rodgers as well (laughs) Beyond yeah that, but yeah. i don't know if that's something we're looking forward to but just doesn't a- no,
1: no yeah that was just like who knows if he's gonna be
0: yeah
1: in, in a job a week from now but I, I think what i'm looking most most looking forward to obviously has got to be city spurs like especially because those games last season um last season so, over
0: the last like four years yeah
1: yeah yeah it's it's a lot of like spurs just taking city's lunch money <laughs> like it's 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 you know um but the machine that is Erling Haaland, um, te- like a, a big test for him in the league. And, and uh, that, that's what I'm really looking forward to. He got 10 goals after this weekend, after scoring again, 10 goals in his first six games, which tied a Premier League record for most goals in, in um, your first six games of your Premier League career. 10 goals on 7.3 XG accumulated. Question there is, that, oh, he's overperforming. Is this sustainable? to which I'm going to answer likely emphatically. Yes. He he's averaging, (laughs) he's averaging 1.4 XG per 90 on his own.
0: That's insane.
1: He's taking, and, and and even if you're like, Oh, well that, that's definitely like, there's no way he stays anywhere near that. I mean, his last two seasons, he's averaged almost 0.9 XG per game. So (laughs) even if it drops, it's not going to be that much. Right. Um, He's getting off 4.7 shots per game, which is the most since he played at Salzburg. (laughs) And then I went and looked back. Um, This is all from FB via the Satsbomb data. I looked at Europeans big five leagues since this data was like publicly available. And we're going back to 2017. And I was just started thinking over the weekend, like, okay, I wonder what the records are for this stuff uh, record for XG accumulated in a season. One season is Lewandowski. Um, he did it last season 32.6. I think Collins has got a great chance of beating that record for XG per 90. Is also Lewandowski, but in 2017, 18 season with 1.2 per game. I, I wow. think, I think, that's going to be really hard, but I think Holland can, can get very close to, if not surpassing that, because what we've done, what we, what has happened is the best goal scorer in the world right now. And not saying necessarily the best finisher, but I'm talking about just goals. Yeah. Just goals. Just someone who can, who finds, who finds the positions to get into, to, to goal, to score a goal has joined the most creative. Team in the world, the best chance creating team in the world. So yeah, we might see. That's, I, I, oh my we might God. see some records one, drop. One point two it, is insane. But yeah,
0: yeah, one point two xG per game is actually outrageous. But if there is a striker right now, yeah, yeah, you might very well be right. I, I don't want to, I don't want to say yes or no because I don't think people realize how insane that is as an XG metric yeah but holland is actually a robot so oh god that's i've n- i never knew that's that so that's that's wild um i think he will certainly look to break the goal scoring record in the prem this season certainly yeah. certainly he's got a
1: great chance he has a very good chance <laughs> he'll be the he'll be the freshest guy coming from the world cup because i he know play
0: <laughs> insane he's just gonna get a four-week vacation in the middle of the season while everyone else is playing basically so yeah oh man. Fun stuff. So, all right, we'll be back. We'll take a quick break. we can talk about La Liga and all the fun games that went on over there. And then, uh, yeah, we'll wrap it up. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back talking La Liga. We're talking about the real fun that happened in Europe this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, I texted you this, Rian, like in the middle of most of the matches, but it was like the morning of Saturday, and the first game of the day was Real Madrid against Real Betis. And... I realized at that point that all of the three, well, actually all the four like major teams in Spain were all playing either each other or top four contenders. And this might be like in contention for one of the best just match days in La Liga in terms of scheduling, like just incredible, incredible games all around. Um, but you tell me, where do you want to start? Because I, I would like to start with, our game of the weekend.
1: <laughs> I think I'd like to start at the same place. <laughs> we had Barcelona, Sevilla, a big game, right? A first, well, probably the first big test for this new Barcelona side, right? And game at the, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Sanchez P Pichuan, yep. Right, a game that coming into it, Julian Lopetegui under some real stress, right? For a team that has looked very, very mediocre um, in these first few games. Uh, So a lot of pressure going into that. And then what kind of, (laughs) the the game did not go exactly how I thought we expected it to go, especially the first half, right? Where Sevilla actually had a lot of possession and Barcelona looked really threatening, but on the counter-attack. And Barcelona yeah. ends up scoring on the counter attack. And, and look, I mean, a lot of their best chances were, were counter attacks, right? Where specifically like Dembele carrying the ball like 40 yards on his own and twisting defenders inside and out. Um, it,
0: it, was, it was not the game we expected to play out, right? No, not at all. And what's interesting about this game is I felt like in the first 20 minutes, I was watching this with my dad and we both kind of looked at each other and we're like, no one really has control of this game. Like it's very much like I'm watching a ping pong match. And when I kind of looked this up afterwards, I realized in the first 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes of this game, Sevilla actually ended up with over 60% possession of the game. I think that's probably why, why I felt like no one really had control because Sevilla were doing a really good job of trying to keep the ball. And I think what led to to that is basically what Real Sociedad did to Barcelona in the last game, and they played a four-man midfield diamond. And what happened with that diamond is you basically had everyone in the Barcelona mid- midfield being man-marked. So Pedri, Gavi, Sergio Busquets were all man-marked, and then you had a floating additional midfielder from Sevilla because all Sevilla's midfielders are grandfathers or above in terms of age at this point. <laughs> so they needed to basically like block off the midfield in some way and, and try and dominate that space. Now, the problem with that is that while they did a really good job of destabilizing Barcelona's midfield, especially in the first 20 minutes, they, they risked a lot of long balls over the top. And when you have quality like Lewandowski, Dembele, Rafinha, all on the counterattack, you're talking about one of the fastest players in the world. In Dembele, you're talking about one of the best finishers in the world in Lewandowski and one of the best wingers right now in Spain, in Rafinha and time and time again, those long balls from Ter Stegen from in some ways Kunde, right? You saw that as yep. well um, for Lewandowski's goal. All of those balls were very route one, very direct because they were just by bi- were bypassing midfield entirely. It's not what Xavi wants to do, but it's what worked when you, you you're basically overrun in midfield. And Sevilla were playing a makeshift backline, right? Fernando is someone who's playing center back for Sevilla, who is not a center back, but still, honestly, like held his own pretty well. But what ended up happening is, of course, they got cut out one or two times. Dembele missing like two sitters. It 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 became at some point really, really clear that you might be able to overrun Barcelona midfield or or just outnumber them, but you will give up chances and risk. A lot, a lot of very clear chances, um, at that. So, yeah, Sevilla, one point from tw- a possible 12, uh, sitting about, well, quite literally a point above the relegation zone at this point. Very, very close to it. Not a good place to be, not a good place to be at all. No, no, I, I really,
1: they. Did such a good job, like you said, is congesting the middle of the pitch for for Barcelona, and um and that I think that helped them a lot, especially in those first twenty five minutes or so, to keep it in that half of the pitch. But then once Barcelona kind of figured it out, and 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 a lot of that was Dembele and Rafinha actually dropping a little deeper, but still staying really wide, so that whether it was um Busquets or any of the center backs, they would just hit those diagonals to to either one of those two wingers, and that just kind of opened up the space for for everyone else. Once they were able to figure that out, Sevilla couldn't stop any of the counters. Like like whenever they lost the ball, that even though they had midfielders all around in the middle of the pitch, they still weren't set up well to actually stop the counter attacks, and that yeah. is that is. Very disappointing, I think, from a defensive standpoint for them because, yeah, that, that was the – it was the lack
0: of adjustments,
1: really, yep. which is which is, what is pretty damning for Lopetegui, especially. Yeah, like and, and,
0: and this Sevilla team likes playing with those high, you know, fullbacks and, and overloads in the, in the wide areas, that sort of thing. But when you do that, you're, again, just – you're exposing yourself so much behind and it's just really, really difficult when, when you do that against a team with such clinical finishers like that, that will come back to bite you. And I am genuinely scared for them against city this week in the champions league. That's their first test in the champions league city coming to town this, uh, I want to say Tuesday instead of Wednesday. Uh, I have to double check, but yeah that's not gonna be fun for them
1: Holland I'm... coming back as well yeah.
0: remember that um the city dormant or um dormant
1: yeah the game where yeah the Holland went crazy on them and, and did that a lot of that like almost on his own I think it was he and Sancho pretty much went crazy on them Um yeah yeah it's it's uh it, it it would be slightly unfair to fire Lopetegui after losing to Manchester City. But depending <laughs> on what it actually what that game actually looks like,
0: I don't think either of us would be surprised. No, right? no, I would not either. The one thing that I'll keep in mind, uh, just defensively, I've talked about Sevilla's woes all season. But statistically, what stood out to me, which is really interesting, actually two things about one one defensively, one defensive point about each team Sevilla have lost 41% of their games that they have not had Koundé, uh in the team since the beginning of the 2019 season versus 12% of games in which they did have him uh, between the beginning of the 2019 season and then versus now with Barcelona, you're seeing almost a resurgence, right? They've let up only one goal this entire season in La Liga. Ter Stegen has saved 12 out of his 13 saves or shots that he is directly faced on goal of which some of them were, you know, shots that were cleared off the line, right? Two of them, in fact, Mm -hmm. but that I think is like one of the biggest differences for these two sides defensively. One has a very solid structure now, right? Very strong center backs invested in that area of the pitch. Sevilla half-heartedly invested in that area over the summer and lost two of their starting center backs just like that granted they got good money but on the field you're seeing you're just seeing that now you really are yeah and I'm
1: I'm really fascinated by you spoke about the Barcelona defensive structure and this team it's really interesting because you saw them basically let Serginho Des go um, on deadline day and yeah whatever the situation is right now with Jordi Alba yeah they have Balde playing there at left back no comment right <laughs> <laughs> but but you see what happened in possession a, a good amount of the times you saw Kunde actually slide in as like uh a third center back right even though he's playing nominally as the right back in that game we know he can play center back as well um it, it's very very like protecting against counters like it, it's very interesting to see like this Xavi team yeah. Um, and I know it's still relatively early days where it's seven months or so seven eight months um, uh, less than a year right less than a year right In, yeah. into his into his time um, you're seeing a, a team that plays structurally it's the defensive structure like when they have the ball Feels like it's slightly different than, than what we saw under Pep when you had like Danny Alves and Jordi Alba bombing down the wings as well, right? Yeah. So it's really, it's really fascinating to watch. Like this team relies on more natural wingers compared to what we saw
0: when Pep Guardiola was the coach. 100%, a 100%. And that is saying something, by the way, because Pep's use of wingers was one of the key markings of his side right? Especially wingers that stayed wide and only Mm -hmm. cut inside at the last possible moment. That was, Mm -hmm. that was huge. I'm very curious to see what the fullback situation is throughout this season, right? It seems like Koundé is going to be staying in that kind of hybrid center back, right back position with Sergio Roberto kind of backing him up. And from a left back perspective, I have no idea what's going to happen with Balde and, um, I guess Jordi Alba slash Marcus Alonso. Now? Marcus Alonso, um, yeah, I almost forgot about him. Uh, yeah, no, you didn't. But, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, I, so that's the thing I'll be keeping an eye on for Barcelona throughout the season. With that, Rian, just yes, wanna, uh, yes. I, I wanna, I wanna touch on, I guess, my surprisingly positive, um, moment from the weekend. I'm not gonna talk about Atletico it. It Real Sociedad. Alvaro Morata off to an absolutely flying start, four goals, four games, right? I'm not going to talk about that. Mm, the human tax right off. <laughs> no one actually knows which team he's, uh, he's actually under contract for. Um, could be Chelsea, could be Juve, no one will ever tell. But I do want to talk about a player that is very close to our hearts. And I want to talk about a team that has struggled in the last two to three years, Valencia. Is there a, a player that strikes your fancy in in Gattuso's new side? I think there might be, but you tell me.
1: Oh, uh, there's there's a couple to pick from. This team is got a <laughs> lot of youth, um, and plays with a lot of passion. And then that's exactly what you'd expect when Gattuso is is their coach. But at least I know that we are on the same page about this one particular U.S. national team player. Yunus Musa, who has been given the keys to play the position that he is most natural in center midfield and he has completely rewarded Gattuso so far in season two assists over the weekend two great assists and two very different kinds of assists which is what makes me even more like giddy about it like when I was watching that two very different types of assists the first one a Beautiful little chipped ball into the, um, into the penalty area for for Lino, who scored like a, an amazing volley in in his own sense. And the second assist, where he gets the ball, basically is surrounded by two to three, um, Hatafe players, spins out of it, like feels the contact, spins out of it, and then plays a beautiful through ball, um, for I think it was it was Guro. Uh, I'm Ingo saying that Guru, name correctly Guro, yeah. Guru, yeah. And, and gets a second assist that way. It was, it was such a complete performance, I thought, from Musa. And he's still 19. He's, and he's, yeah. Was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's
0: he is literally a child. Um, I think with Carlos Soler gone, and I texted this to you yesterday, now that Carlos Soler has gone central midfield for Valencia, Yunus Musa absolutely has the potential now to become Valencia's most important player. And that is maybe on par, probably even more important than Jose Gaya, because what Valencia, I feel like, like they always kind of struggled with isn't necessarily, you know, midfield retention, et cetera, and, and skill in that area, but it's really been in their kind of their ability to defend properly. Where this becomes really interesting now is not that Yunus Musa is just. Tactical brilliant defender, but what I think this could lead to is teams looking at Yunus Musa as a player that can cause them more harm than maybe previously the Valencia team did not have, and that changes. I think the way that you approach Valencia, I think that changes the way that you potentially defend or it changes the way that you actually attack Valencia. Right? That's really going to be the interesting part to me. Is can Yunus Musa's ability to drive the ball forward and play balls through different lines actually impact how Valencia can defend and what kind of chances they'll concede. That's going to be really interesting to me. Um, I don't know if there's a perfect answer to that, but he, he balled out with two assists. I mean, I'm really happy for him. Um, I can't, I actually can't wait to see him at the world cup. So that's all I've got on the surprising piece.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I I co-sign it all. I, I'm also extremely excited. Let's, Fingers crossed that he stays fit healthy throughout the rest of the season, at least leading up to the world cup. But yeah, that guy becomes like, if not the most important player for the U S one of the two or three.
0: A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So last thing Brian, just on the disappointing side and then kind of what I'm looking forward to it's, it's just one team that's disappointed me the most it's Cadet. Uh, four games, four losses, zero goals. I think eight conceded They they're just, they're shitting the bed. There's no other way to put it. Um, they have yet to score a goal all season. And most importantly, they have only accrued 1.52 XG over four games, over four games, (laughs) Barcelona against Sevilla accrued 4.52 XG, which is the highest in all of Europe's top five leagues so far this season. Whereas Cardiff have have not done much at all. Um, Lucas Perez, by the way, I think is responsible for almost one of that <laughs> XG, or at, <laughs> at the very least zero point seven five. Um, so it's just it's a really sad situation what's going on over there because they they made every effort to stay up. We're you know lucky to stay up last season. Yeah, final and, day, right? Yep, on the final day, and are are not really looking like a side that has it in them to stay up at all this season oh man well
1: they're doing like the the opposite of Leicester, where Leicester like barely stayed yeah. up and then they won the league this is it, barely stayed yeah. up and now they're gonna just finish 20th oh man yep
0: yep yeah it's really i don't know what's going on there but it is not good but at least on the positive i'll say um next weekend yes we have city spurs but Rian, we have Real Betis against Villarreal mm-hmm. next weekend, and that's going to be my game. I can already tell you right now that's going to be my game of the weekend. And it's third versus fourth. It's at the Benito Villa Marine, which is uh, Real Betis' stadium. Um, I am so looking forward to that game on Sunday. That is going to be a fantastic game um oh and by the way for cadet barcelona visit them next weekend so that's not going to be fun oh uh, so, so. You
1: know, it's it easier <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah of course right. exactly yeah. The confidence, uh, the, exactly what you need when you need your confidence boosted let's <laughs> go play against Lewandowski.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah that's not going to be fun uh oh i i don't want to be in that that uh halftime halftime press <laughs> not not press conference but team talk so uh, anyway with that i'll leave you guys with that thought um other- what were you gonna say? I was gonna say
1: one. I mean, this is neither La Liga or or uh, Premier League specifically, but oh, other thing that we're looking forward to obviously is Champions League coming back this week.
0: Champ, we never even did. You know, what's funny is we never did a um a preview of the Champions League like we always do with the with the group stages. Yeah, but I think it's very very clear what the group of death is, and I'm being purely <laughs> yeah. as objective as possible. But having Barcelona, Bayern, and Inter in one group is uh, nothing short of masochism. And I would, like to, I would like to talk to the UEFA official who actually picked out those balls. Uh, that's all I've got to say.
1: Uh, you're going to have to speak with Yaya Torre himself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you don't get that joke, uh, go look up Yaya Torre um, and, and why why he was in the news a few years ago about that. So I won't spoil it. Anyway. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll talk about, I guess, the Champions League um, in the next couple days and and next weekend, uh, as well as the results from next weekend's game. So with that, we'll leave you all with a parting thought. Thank you, as always, for listening. We'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks, guys.